0: I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. Have a nice dinner, relax. 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 relax,
1: relax, relax. Hey, hey, everybody, welcome back to Shock Therapy, Truth Bombs and Transmutations, Episode 23
0: nobody likes you when you're 23 (laughs) i need to delete that i
1: I, we didn't talk about this i knew you were gonna do that i was like what is she gonna do today i was like i think it's gonna be a blink and it sure was
0: i mean i guess that's cliche at this point because like i remember thinking it on my 23rd birthday like writing that in my sister's card for her 23rd um but i mean yeah really what else can you say for 23?
1: It's the go-to. It's the signature move. I'm so glad you did it.
0: It goes with the theme of <sighs> our episode, too, indirectly. Yes. yes.
1: It actually does. It actually does. Yeah, we have a, a quite a doozy for uh, our dear listeners. Welcome back. My Altoid can just fell to the ground. <laughs> Welcome back to our dear long-term listeners who are very attractive, Thoughtful, considerate, hilarious, savvy, and have great butts. <laughs> and also, welcome to our new listeners. We're really glad to have you. Shock Therapy has forecasted a lot of things that have come to fruition before they did this year. And it's going to be more of that to come as we head into the final home stretch, allegedly the home stretch of election season. So, anyway, welcome back to everybody very happy to have you we're gonna per usual kick things off with a few news updates
0: oh yeah um we're not psychics but we're not saying we're not not psychics (laughs) because we have predicted some things um people who are just listening now might want to listen from the first episode even though it's chaotic and in the first few episodes Um, there are some sound issues and whatnot, but anyway, listen back. You might be shocked. Um, so today we'll start with a news update. I just saw this absurd ad Trump made, um, for his campaign and he's talking shit about Biden saying the economy is going to go to shit if he wins and that, you know, don't you all want the economy to go back to how great it was doing before the pandemic, Um, And what's really ironic about this ad is that the steel plant that he features, that he's, like, standing in, um, in front of in the ad, is actually one that laid off about 737 workers in April due to COVID. Um, And that's not all. It's been accruing layoffs for a long time in the thousands so they've been doing um struggling for a while and yet you know of course Trump is oblivious to this and I almost wonder if it was like tongue in cheek with someone um who was making this ad who secretly hates him and wants to subvert him because did no one do their homework
1: classic all these steel workers are out of a job meanwhile he's touting his economic strength i mean come on how did they not look into that
0: it's it's beyond me um yeah but the other huge news update uh and this happened only i think a few hours ago the new york times was able to get a hold of the long concealed records um Trump's tax records. Were you, were you shocked at all about the findings?
1: I was not. And so for our listeners who haven't seen this yet, I'm actually going to quickly read a Bernie tweet uh, from, yeah, a couple hours ago. Shock of shocks. Donald Trump, the self-proclaimed billionaire, received a $72.9 million tax refund from the IRS while not paying a nickel in federal income taxes in 10 out of 15 years. Yep. Trump loves loves corporate socialism for himself, rugged capitalism for everyone else.
0: Definition of an oligarch.
1: Truly. And yeah, to add salt to the wound, I think I saw that in the year 2016, the year that he was uh, elected he paid like $750 total, $750 total in in federal taxes.
0: That is, yeah, not surprising at all. I just wonder how the New York Times was able to get this leak because people, like, they weren't able to get this during the 2016 election.
1: Right, yeah, I was really shocked to see, the, I mean, the content of it, I was not surprised. But yeah, as you're saying, how do they make this happen? Because this has been talked about for years. We know, like the Southern District of New York, uh, and you know the lawsuits have been underway to uh, make them public, uh, but I didn't quite see that involved with the news quite yet. So probably more to come, but definitely bombshell news and really deflating the balloon of his, uh, you know, clownish wealth, which we all know is you know. Wildly exaggerated uh, in addition to not fucking paying taxes like most of the corporations in the United States.
0: Oh yeah, exactly. And like in 2018 Trump said um, in his disclosure he had made at least $434 million but his tax records show that he actually had $47 million in losses.
1: Way to turn that... <laughs> Frown upside down.
0: And upside down again. Frown
1: <laughs> Again and again and again.
0: It's just um as we know, you know, he he's been bankrupt, he had like he's a con man. Um he he had failures in Atlantic City, but really it was the apprentice which revived his um public persona and gave him the appearance of being a successful businessman
1: absolutely that show which real talk i did watch with my parents in high school like several seasons of uh unironically (laughs) Um, same yeah that that show totally like created a wrinkle in time right in like public imagination that made his run possible right without that show You know, it's hard to imagine his candidacy getting off the ground in 2015,
0: 2016. Right, but do you think this will even make a dent now?
1: Mm, No.
0: Exactly. I mean, it's just another... um, I don't even know. It's just another almost yesterday's news. It's like, at this point... um, His base is just going to stick by him.
1: Oh, yeah, they're going to stand by their man for sure. Uh, Yeah, I don't think it's going to do any any bit of of damage. And I think, you know, at this point, almost any news is ammo for him because I could see a lot of his base being like, that's a winner right there. Yeehaw. Pow, 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 pow. Like guns in the air. Yeah, totally.
0: It's wild, but we just have to hope that his... Um, base is a lot smaller than we think and we do have reason to believe that. Um, Like we've told listeners before, uh, you are a man on the ground in Portland, uh, a very interesting place to be right now Um, and recently it seemed really scary because I was seeing all these messages about, you know, the Proud Boys coming in and other white nationalists coming to like fuck shit up and uh, wreak havoc but it turned out um, there was a far less turnout than expected, right?
1: That's true, yeah. There was like a helicopter circling around my neck of the woods most of the day Saturday. You know, the governor declared a state of emergency. So, you know, the city was on high alert expecting, you know, some violence, a big brawl uh, and a crowd of maybe thousands on the part of like the Patriot Prayer Proud Boys crowd, the far-right folks, the national white nationalists. However... I believe the count uh, was about just under 200 people. And so some people, some eyes on the ground saw them after being there for a bit, uh, drive their trucks up uh, to Janssen beach and to Vancouver on the other side of the river in Washington to get hammered. (laughs) So they, they, yeah, did not turn out in the numbers expected and, and just got a bunch of brewskis with the boys.
0: Holy shit. Well, see, things like that give me hope because now all of these like really potentially terrifying and inflamed situations, you know, seem to not be as bad as expected. And I'm hoping it's the same with Trump and um, these fascist like parallels, which we're going to explore.
1: Yes, definitely. And on the note of uh, dovetailing off of The Apprentice, I just want to briefly mention The Choice. The Choice is a tradition on American public television by the show Frontline. And so every September before a presidential election, they do this uh, two-hour-long documentary about uh, the two leading candidates. And so my co-host and I both watch this, The Choice. And I just wanted to like just a couple minutes real quick uh, chat about like our highlights about, you know, their origins, their uh, sort of families they grew up in, and that kind of the pivotal moments in their life that sort of essentially made them the men that they are today is kind of the, the way that it's uh, orchestrated.
0: Yeah. Um, it was very interesting. I don't remember the one they did in 2016 at all, the first one with Trump, I would love to um, you know, compare and contrast that to the one that they did this year. Do you remember it all?
1: I do, yeah. I remember there was definitely some similarities with uh, Trump's arc, Trump's story. The one uh, line that really jumps out to me was like, a, I believe it was a close uh, family friend or something like that. Who, uh, or perhaps it was an interviewer, I forget. But they basically expressed that uh, t- that Donald Trump has said on record before that he sees himself as the very same person that he was when he was in first grade.
0: Those are his <laughs>
1: words. So I just I got a kick out of that big time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw they no- they mentioned that this time. <laughs> it was really funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the, the opening, uh, I don't even know, I guess first 20 minutes or so I felt was extremely wild. You know, this is always supposed to be, uh, non-biased and it definitely was biased, but I think extreme times sometimes call for extreme measures. Um, and you know, it just painted a picture of Trump as this, bully this schoolyard bully that no one really liked his dad ingrained in him this mindset of kill or be killed glorified being a killer um and you know they had uh his niece who wrote that book like expose, psychological expose about him, Mary Trump. They had her on that, which I found yeah. like salacious. It almost seemed like um an e true Hollywood story or something. <laughs> they're like taking a peek into his psyche and I was like, Holy shit. Um I just imagine it's vastly different from all of the other years where they talk about the candidate's experience and um that kind of background and not like there them being a narcissist, um, and as you and I discussed, there was like his the toxic positivity Trump has too, which is almost like denial of anything negative, um, which we see with Corona and other every other crisis he's dealt with in this presidency. But yeah, at the beginning it was like that bully Trump versus you know little underdog little Joey. They kept calling him Joey. Um, And again, we heard the story about the nun making fun of his stutter and his mom going to, like, rip off her bonnet or threatening to. Uh, And it was just, yeah, it was like a very, like, he's down with you, like, down with the people vibe. And he's more in touch and he cares. And he cares about people on both sides of the aisle. So that was what I thought about the beginning. What would you think?
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree. The good old salty joke. Salty Dog Joe Scranton, you know, Joe Everyman, you know. Um, Yeah, I think the, the bully versus the everyman thing was played up for sure. And not to mention, you know, we have the first debate coming up on Tuesday, September 29th. So I will be certainly thinking of that, like, the bully thing and then... The Joe's stutter, uh, Joe Biden's stutter, because I, I do think that, you know, Biden will get steamrolled. But anyway, yeah, the toxic positivity church that Trump attended with his father, Fred, it, you know, it's, I, I texted my co host to say, like, you know, I don't think of him as being an optimist because he, in, evokes so much fear and chaos. However, to his base, though, I think they they do. That's one of the things that they do like about him, right, is that he actually is a... He calls himself a cheerleader in his tweets and stuff, but they do see him as a positive force for some vision of America that they are clinging to, which we'll talk about today. Um, but yeah, one other thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about 45's biography is that he and his father... Fred essentially bullied his older brother into alcoholism that led to his untimely death because he wanted to be a pilot. His older brother's passion was to become a pilot, and Trump said something like, if you want to fucking drive a bus in the sky, good for you. <laughs> and so, so anyway, they-, they bullied him because he wanted to fly planes, which is like a, a beautiful dream, a beautiful thing to do. Um, and he, like, died. So, um, yeah. Definitely more more to come. It's worth a It's worth a watch, I think, Uh, but yeah, Yeah. there's definitely some um, some storytelling that has some, uh, you know, there's some uh, room for for some storytelling there for sure.
0: Yeah. But that being said, like the rest of the um, program, I felt like it was a little bit more balanced because, of course, they did mention like the Biden and Anita Hill thing. Um, And God, honestly, I forget what what else they mentioned he did, uh, because as usual, so many other things have transpired since then. But I think it's the Mm -hmm. stuff he always gets criticized for. Do you remember
1: what else Biden was criticized Mm -hmm. for? I think um, like the the crime bill in the 1990s uh, that he was a big part of. Uh, like kind of the war on drugs and all the incarceration uh, bullshit that was enshrined in law. And what else? Um, that's the main thing that came to mind. Uh, oh, and also his series. It's like series of unfortunate events with him. It reminds me of this quote, Allegedly for legal purposes. Allegedly, in this political article earlier this year, uh, Obama said to one of his aides, allegedly, that don't underestimate Biden's ability to fuck everything up. Um, But I bring that up because in this documentary, The Choice, on Frontline, on PBS, uh, they bring up his track record of plagiarism and um, kind of making up lies about his his experience in the
0: past oh, uh, yeah. his
1: military experience and also his um, academic uh, success as well
0: mm-hmm. but i think trump lied about his academic success too sure, but it's like for sure but yeah, yeah he like he like said he was like oh he meant to say he was paraphrasing so and so um but you know what i think that's fairly common in politics i mean Lest we forget when Melania straight up stole a Michelle Obama
1: word for word. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That speech was, uh, would that would get you like an F if you were in school, but, um, Oh,
1: for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but you're, you're right. It does people. There's some latitude. People do, you know, do do that in politics, I would say in the public sphere. So perhaps not the most salacious shit. It definitely pales in comparison to the shit that Trump has done. But yeah, we shall we shall see how, you know, Biden's buttons are going to get pressed by 45. And um, apparently, reportedly, uh, Trump is not preparing at all uh, for the debates. And Biden has just said, like, yeah, you know, Biden obviously is preparing to be like the fact checker kind of on the in real time. Uh, uh, but he, he, he said, like, yeah, Trump's not very smart, so I'm not too worried about it. Uh, so I don't know, we'll see what
0: happens. He should be worried because if he's the fact checker i mean he's the one who just said like tw- 200 million people died of coronavirus
1: yeah he's a gaffe machine so yeah we'll definitely be covering the debate next episode a bit uh that's coming this tuesday there are three debates um uh, between uh trump and biden and then one between the the vps so and we'll definitely be covering those. And before we get into our main topic this episode, I do want to bring up one more news item, which was an article that made the rounds this week. Put it that way, it was widely covered uh, on Talking Heads on television. There were a lot of other uh, pieces written about this this big article. So this Pulitzer Prize winning uh, journalist. Barton Gelman wrote this piece titled The Election That Could Break America. It's very long. It's almost 10,000 words. Uh, but essentially what it boils down to is actually a theory that we talked about on shock therapy earlier this summer. Uh, but it's worth a read. It's definitely long. But what it boils down to is uh, the, the Constitution has actually some murky territories with regard to Uh, the various uh, electors being assigned and the various dates and the safe harbor dates and all this shit. So basically the whole point is that there is no referee in this situation if they do take advantage of these, I don't want to call them loopholes, but gray areas, if you will, in the the process of transition. Uh, So we could get to a point on January 20th, 2021, where three people show up to be sworn in. Trump, Biden, and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, so the other big bombshell element of this article was that uh, high-ranking strategists, operatives on Trump's re-election team, uh, have basically expressed, uh, anonymously expressed, that yes, they are pursuing these channels to, uh, you know, proceed with undermining the election results and assigning electors that weren't the ones that. Uh, reflected the votes in the state and a bunch of shenanigans. But uh, anyway, any any comments from you, my co-host, your co-host, on that, that piece, that Barton Gelman piece?
0: Yeah, um, well, it definitely makes me strongly believe that this election will be contested legally, um, way worse than the Bush versus Gore election was, and everyone already thought that was such a mess so this yeah it's just interesting because it's like a lot of safeguards we think would be in place for a peaceful transition of power um they're actually nothing more than like rituals um so there mm-hmm. it's like it, i hear of course you know today i was actually starting to feel good like oh maybe people are um worried about this situation now and Trying to prevent it because uh, when he first made these remarks um, about you know like not not leaving or like that we'll see about if he's gonna leave office and he threatened to get rid of the ballots and um, <clears throat> he said there's gonna be like a continuation of power. <clears throat> so when that happened, like God, what was that like last week or whatever. The Republicans on Capitol Hill were, gave him like a really mild like tweets where they didn't even mention him by name. But, you know, like Bitch McConnell made a statement like the election will go on um, and, you know, basically peaceful transfer of power. Mitt Romney also echoed that. By the way, side note, people um, watch. This girl I really like, uh, really graceful on YouTube. She does a lot of good research, but Sheena uh, did a video, like, in the other day about Mitt Romney and his connections with Bane, and he has a really weird past, so side note, look into him, but yeah, this is just, like, uh, they didn't denounce him, like, by name, so it's good they said that, but, like, we can't trust Bitch McConnell and people like Lindsey Graham and stuff because... You know, they lied about <clears throat> about what's going on uh, with this judicial situation now. Like, Lindsey Graham has been on the record saying, you know, during the Obama thing, when Obama wanted to um, appoint or suggest someone to be appointed to the Supreme Court, uh, Lindsey Graham kept saying on record, like, in two different years that this would not happen in the reverse situation. And of course, when it comes down to it, it did. So it's like, yeah, they mildly rebuked him, Trump, without even saying his name. But like, are we really to believe them and take them at for their words right now? I don't think so.
1: Totally agreed. And look, the bottom line is they have gone all in on Trump, right? Bitch uh, McConnell, a.k.a. Moscow Mitch, He is all about (laughs) pure power, right? And like the RNC, which we covered in this podcast, their platform, one of the whole rituals of the RNC, the DNC, is they like release their platform, right? Their party's platform for the next four years. And the RNC's platform was one sentence long. They didn't do anything new. They just said, yes, Trump's America first Uh, platform is what we support and whatever he wants to do. (laughs) So you best believe that they're going to, you know, they want to stay in power, too, obviously. Uh, Lindsey Grimm's facing his first competitive election in years. Mitch McConnell looks like he's going to retain his Senate seat, uh, but the Senate might be taken by uh, by the Democrats. At the end of the day, they're going to fucking pull every fight, every tooth and nail to, yeah, ensure that Trump gets inaugurated January 2021. You better believe it.
0: Mm. Yeah, this is like a slow motion car
1: wreck. A slow motion car wreck indeed. And you know what? That is the perfect segue into our main topic for today, which is the rise of fascism in the United States of America. It is not unlike a slow motion car wreck I want to kick things off. We have a lot of things to talk about, but I just want to kick things off with a little exercise. We haven't done this before, but I invite listeners, our dear listeners, to just briefly close your eyes. Please close your eyes just for a moment and do like a mental Rolodex of just maybe visuals of of Trump and what you've maybe seen him do, say, act at rallies on, on TV and what have you. Just do that for for a moment while I read to you the definition of fascism by this author, Jason Stanley, and how fascism works. So please close your eyes. I invite you to do that. And just visuals, uh, just Rolodex, mental Rolodex of Trump. Fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by immigrants, minorities, and leftist radicals. The fascist leader creates panic and fear about a takeover by Marxists and leftists and presents himself as the only solution who shall set you free what the fuck? What the fuck? Mm. He's the only solution. So yeah, open your eyes. I, um, you know, I have to say like in researching this episode, it was like pretty chilling to be honest. And you know, this, all these trend pieces and shit like that about fascism and authoritarianism and stuff like that. I'll be real with you. Like I've almost kind of rejected on a gut level, like, Kind of like things things be crazy, but it couldn't happen here. Like almost like this deep sense of like uh, kind of how we're socialized growing up really about like just American exceptionalism, right? And that it's in almost the inevitability of like American democracy, right? Like, so I'll be honest, I've been kind of struggling, challenging myself to with clear eyes take in what's been going down Uh, But I just want to pop things over to my co-host, like, what's been your experience with just recognizing and, like, taking in, maybe even accepting, like, the rise of fascism in the United States?
0: Well, I thought what you read was really interesting, because there are some parallels, but then some obvious things that um are kind of inverted in this situation because this is not a leftist situation. And that's what's so strange in a way, too, because remember, like, um, Republicans were supposed to be the party who want to have less government, and they were supposed to be, you know, outraged when the Fed goons atta- inv- invade or attack any city. Those are the people who should be sounding the alarm, saying something wrong is happening here um but they're not because they're under his spell you know this one con man only he can save them but it's just interesting you mentioned that because I wanted to bring up um I read this interview with another journalist um uh his name is Chris Hedges and he's also a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and he wrote this um called American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America. So he explains how the Christian right um is actually what's fueling this type of American fascism and he says like, you know, he talks about the hundreds of senators and members of Congress who have earned between 80 and 100 percent approval ratings from the three most influential Christian right advocacy groups. Um, So that's just one of the signs that the movement is making, um, taking a hold of the American government to subvert it, and it's all to dismantle the separation between church and state. And it's really interesting because we talk a lot about Trump's Christian base and how Trump pretends to be a Christian for this reason and he pretends really badly um, this is why he held up a bible like Hitler and tear gas to all these people to have this photo op um, and so it's interesting to think that it's not the left causing fascism although some, some people would argue that like Biden would be a fascist and have more lockdowns and I don't know but that's not my argument I'm making right here, um, so yeah, I think that book is really interesting. But this same author also had uh, also had a book um, called America: The Farewell Tour, and I think that's actually his newest book. And there he talks about like how this there was this slow moving corporate like coup d'état, which basically the ruling classes or like the oligarchs of the seventies. They were shocked to see what happened in the sixties when everyone did LSD, had ego death, realized capitalism ain't shit. Like there was this huge movement in the sixties we always hear about, but it never fully blossomed. It slowly got stomped upon. And this is what happened in the seventies. This is what we talk about with the uh, documentary hyper normalization as well, because in the 70s, that's when they undid the reforms of the 60s to subvert that movement, and that's when the corporations slowly took their hold on America. So then when I think about that, I'm kind of like, hmm, how do the corporations relate to fascism if they do? yeah, And the question is if they do. Um, but they talk about how like the corporations taking o- over has really brought society to this breaking point. But what do you think about the American fascist, like the Christian right, kind of making Trump... Well, do you think, do you agree with that theory at all?
1: Well, look, the evangelical Christians are essentially... Trump's base, by and large. I'm not saying that there aren't others in his base, but they are a force to be reckoned with in the United States. They, You could argue uh, that the appointment of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court and all of his packing of federal courts, circuit courts with... I mean, so many far-right judges, this is for the evangelicals. It's for his entire base, but it's the evangelicals who uh, self-report that the judiciary is one of the most important uh, aspects of their their vote, basically. Uh, but stepping back to my co-host's question, I do think that there's a lot of overlap between these early warning signs of, of fascism, the rise of fascism, and the evangelical priorities to evidence uh, as evidence. I want to just rattle off this list of early warning signs of fascism, right? So just think about like what we've kind of seen and witnessed in the last three and a half years, as I rattle off this early warning signs of fascism list, powerful and continuing nationalism, disdain for human rights, identification of enemies as a unifying cause supremacy of the military Rampant sexism, controlled mass media, obsession with national security, religion and government intertwined, corporate power protected, labor power suppressed, disdain for intellectuals and the arts, obsession with crime and punishment, rampant cronyism and corruption, and fraudulent elections.
0: Ooh, tick, 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 all of the boxes. Tick,
1: tick, tick, all the way down. I can think of several examples in each of those categories can't you
0: yeah just one of them um the disdain for arts or whatever made me think of obviously he tweets so many things about anyone who makes fun of him but especially snl
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he watches. I know SNL is about to start next week. I'm pumped. But yeah, he definitely cannot stand that. And that anti-intellectualism, I mean, we've seen that so much uh, with the anti-science rhetoric, right, especially anti-science, anti-expert rhetoric, especially during this, uh, during this pandemic, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like, just to be clear, like, we're not in a fascist regime right now with regard to... You know policy and all that stuff. However, and also you can argue like Trump is incapable. <laughs> like he's he's a wannabe strongman, right? Like he uses this fascist rhetoric, and also with in terms of like my co-host mentioned uh, wealth and corporate the corporate state. Yeah, I mean we're in an oligarchy to some degree and his fascist rhetoric and his policies certainly support that but it's more that he uses this fascist rhetoric um for the most part Uh, he certainly has done things that are aligned with fascist tactics but just to be clear like i think we're both in agreement like we're not currently in like a fascist regime uh yet no Uh, one quick thing i want to yeah (laughs) One quick thing I want to throw out there is uh, because I think this, you know, gets lost in the noise, like a lot of things, because so much has happened. And that's also a part of his strategy, uh, really further expanding our shock thresholds, really, since day one that he was elected. Uh, But this is back in, I believe, 2017. Uh, Trump retweeted this, this following quote. It is better to live one day as a lion than 100 years as a sheep
0: oh my so gosh. he
1: reached retwe- yeah so he retweeted that uh this is early on in his presidency and twitter and you know commentators and the general public were quick to uh point out that that is a mussolini quote so he retweeted this mussolini quote And when confronted on some talk show that like, Hey, like, do you want to be, it was like Chuck Todd, I think on MSNBC, he's like, do you want to be associated with, with Mussolini? And he's like, Mussolini was Mussolini. Mussolini was a great guy. And, you know, and then he's like, do you want to be associated with fascism? And he's like, well, look, I, I want to be associated with fantastic quotes, So, of course, he, like, diverted his answer. But, yeah, I mean, he literally retweeted a Mussolini quote here. And as we've talked about on this podcast, this is not news. But, of course, he's associated himself with these, like, strongman authoritarians, projecting strength, demonizing enemies, dismantling institutions, all this stuff, Um, as, like, Putin and Orbach and Bolsonaro and and Duterte, uh, leaders in China, Venezuela, Poland, like, all this shit. Like, these are his friends, right? Uh, Basically.
0: Yeah, his bromance uh, with Kim Jong-un, who may or may not be dead.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah.
0: We still can't prove that. But, yeah, like you said, he loves dictators, so... (laughs) <laughs> that's if that's not already a red flag, mm, check if you're colorblind. <laughs> it's just yeah. fucked up. And like, like you said, I mean, you know, we don't want to be alarmist um, because, you know, I have seen people who make the theory or make the argument that America is already in a fascist state and it's already been underway for some time. Um, however, you know... I do want to point out some parallels with him and Hitler. Um, Again, I'm not calling Trump Hitler. I don't think he has the wherewithal to pull off something like this. I don't think he has the numbers. Like, when I see uh, Hitler's rallies, oh, holy shit, it's, like, packed with people. Mm -hmm. And there's no way they could have, like, faked that video back then, you know, Um, uh, as opposed to when Trump tried to fake What what was it? It was it his inauguration speech or he tried to fake Mm -hmm. the crowd? Yeah. So anyway, Hitler couldn't have faked that back then. Um, That being said, I've also heard some accounts that Hitler was actually lazy and he was like sleeping during important decisions, like during Normandy and stuff like that. Um, So I don't know. Maybe they do have more in common. Uh, It's all more about like the team behind you. I think. But yeah, I although I'm not calling him Hitler, I do just want to point out some Hitler or some Hitlers, some parallels between the two. So in no particular order, um, I want to say in 2016, you might remember um, those freaky little girls he had singing at his rallies. I think they were the trumpets, right?
1: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yep.
0: Yeah, so that's uh, almost a, a parallel to, like, Hitler youths because he had them marching in the rallies. And I've heard accounts of, you know, people who were hit part of the Hitler youth saying how they felt during these rallies and that they were meant to feel so superior and so important and so unstoppable and that they were, like, indoctrinated with propaganda in school about Hitler loving them and, like, being this great guy who cares about them so much and this, you know, powerful fur-her figure, father figure. And it's kind of akin to, like, what Trump wants to do now with this patriotic education, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, this patriotic education, I think he's set, rattled off some number, like, $500 million he wants to dedicate to this, this program, uh, this strategy of yeah essentially like institutionalizing in the schools of the United States this like you know essentially nationalistic pride this harkening back to this like mythic uh past which is a uh, rate right out of Hitler's playbook
0: oh 100% and there's been rumors like he sleeps uh with a copy of Mein Kampf I I can't fucking say that right Um, And and like other things like that. But yeah, some other things. I mean, we talked about the nationalism, of course. um, That's like direct. Of course, uh, Trump with his fake news. I mean, Hitler had his Lugan press, which literally means the lying press. So another parallel. Um, In 2017, you might remember Trump said in front of the U.N. that he would totally destroy North Korea. This was before his bromance. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he said Kim Jong-un won't be around much longer, which is really Nazi-like oration from Nuremberg rallies in 1938 and 39, if you want to look up some of those speeches, because the rhetoric is eerily similar And again, it's just very interesting. We've talked about this in other episodes where it's like, at this point in time, America is acting like a country that America would intervene in and go, like, to Mm. save democracy. So I wonder if all these other countries are gonna, like, bomb us to save our democracy and, like, give a taste of our own medicine. Um, I sure as hell hope not. But yeah, another parallel, of course, is, like, the concentration camps i mean if you don't think ice Mm -hmm. is a concentration camp also unfollow me bitch because they're forcing people to have hysterectomies and also of course you know the separation of the kids and the parents and just like it just it's just beyond it's it's so inhumane um so those are just some of the parallels what do you think
1: yeah, I mean, there definitely are, are parallels for sure uh, in, in the rhetoric, 100%. I mean, I go back to this, we covered this on the podcast this summer, but yeah, one of the most haunting images, haunting episodes, haunting days of this presidency was, yeah, when, you know, in the wake of uh, George Floyd's murder and there was Black Lives, Black Lives Matter protests uh, really throughout the country in Washington, D.C., you know, when he gassed the crowd with no warning uh, to stomp over with his team to do that photo up with that Bible. Uh, I mean, if you look at photos, uh, historic photos of Hitler, I mean, him standing in front of that church with that Bible, I mean, it's it, it's really eerie. Not Not only like what he did that day to get that photo, but what that photo represents and how similar it is to some images of Hitler. Another thing, Jason Stanley, who wrote this book, How Fascism Works um you know he includes the the 10 elements of fascism and one of them is this uh I'm going to butcher the german my apologies but it's uh Arbeit Mach frei which essentially uh means work shall make you free it's this underpinning idea of of uh, Mein Kampf and uh Hitler's whole strategy which is like social darwinism winning matters over everything right um not to mention like what was it two weeks ago now that trump tweeted i believe he tweeted it might have been in a rally i can't remember at this point but he he was talking speaking of eugenics and stuff like that he was talking about the superiority of uh his genes Mm -hmm. and how the genes of uh the people in the audience were superior i mean (laughs) yeah it doesn't take much to connect the dots between these two figures right
0: I was literally just going to mention that comment at the rally so you read my mind because, yeah, I mean, I've read a lot of think pieces where historians who've studied fascism are like, way more alarmed than people in power and i don't know if it's because of like bystanders bystander syndrome where everyone else thinks someone else is gonna take care of this matter so they'll Mm -hmm. nip it in the bud and it won't happen but actually no one is taking care of it um because again remember like at first no one even thought he could win last time and he was already talking about like taking the election and things like that, but now he's an incumbent and he has way more p- executive powers. He didn't have them then. Um,
1: Absolutely right. And, and on that note, like the, the grandstanding and almost the like theatrical uh, entertainment showman, really loud exaggerations. I mean, that was at the RNC, he violated uh, federal law in In having his speech at the White House, using the instruments, using the uh, the center of uh, the the federal government, uh, the executive branch in his election uh, campaign. I mean, as you said, he is an incumbent. He has, uh, as Noam Chomsky recently said in an interview, like he also has like the 82nd Airborne Division on his side. You know, like um, essentially. So. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely pretty uh, pretty wild. And one other like quote I wanted to throw out there, and this is an article I'd recommend to all of our listeners, uh, for our new listeners and our old ones as well, just as a reminder, we like to, you know, when we do our research and stuff, we look in all different uh, types of resources from a wide, uh, wide variety of resources across the political spectrum, right? So there's this... Uh, Uh, Magazine, I believe it is. It's called The New Statesman, and it's a very conservative uh, outlet. They recently posted um, earlier this month, September 2020, this article with this really haunting image um, of Trump riding on horseback with the American flag as a cape and the horses trotting up these steps, and the steps were made of, like, KKK hoods. Uh, And the article is titled The Return of American Fascism, And it's how a legacy of violent nationalism haunts the Republic in the age of Trump. So one thing to keep in mind, I'm going to read this uh, quote really quick, but like we're talking about like Trump, the person, right? And we're talking about he's coming to the end of his first term and there's this election about Trump, the person, right? November 3rd. Let's keep in mind that like Trumpism, like this whole movement, we talk about how like the GOP has essentially turned into Trumpism, right? Like a everything he represents and wants. Like Trumpism isn't going away, right? Like this is the the new kind of Republican party, you could argue. Um, but I want to throw out this quote real quick uh, from this article in the New Statesman. Uh, fascism is not a principled or ideological stand. It's the politics of grievance. An instrumentalist response to a political situation it perceives as unacceptable. Fascism is the counter-revolutionary politics of force, justified by ultranationalism, glorified by myths of regeneration and purification, performed by masculine cults of personality and sold as the will of the people. I bring that up just to tie things back to what my co-host was just saying, um, Again, we're not saying Trump is Hitler, but we're just noting, pointing at these similarities. We're not in the, not in the saying. rhetoric and the messaging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah, we're exactly <laughs> for legal purposes. Yeah, um, but yeah, I mean the the myths of regeneration and purification. That's what Mein Kampf was all about. My struggle, right, um, and and everything that he he represented was this idea of uh, yeah purifying. Um, one other i you know we did a lot of research on this one other thing to throw out i don't want to be rattling off quotes forever but just to keep the conversation going one other uh quick quote i want to throw out there is by this uh author robert o paxton of columbia university in 1998 he published this like seminal piece on the five stages of fascism and so i just want to read quickly what those five stages are again i as we're sharing these with you and having this conversation just think about like what you've seen, what you've witnessed, what you've heard in the last three and a half years. Um, so at first sight, this is a quote from Robert O. Paxson's piece, Five Stages of Fascism. At first sight, nothing seems easier to understand than fascism. It presents itself to us in crude primary images, a chauvinist demagogue haranguing an ecstatic crowd, discipline ranks of marching youths, Uniformed shirted militants beating up members of some demonized minority, obsessive preoccupation with community decline, humiliation, or victimhood, and compensatory cult of unity, energy, and purity pursued with redemptive violence.
0: It's eerie. I think, I believe we were talking about this last time, or I don't know if we were just talking about this with each other. I can't tell anymore. But when he got, um, yeah, he showed up uh, at RBG's. It was like a memorial. I don't think it was the funeral. It was like a memorial. And the crowd was just chanting, vote him out. And you can tell, like, that's the one thing that's going to get to him so badly. And he will retaliate. Um, So, yeah. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And that was hard to watch. Uh, Not because I felt bad for him. But yeah, that video you're saying at RBG's funeral where you're hearing these shouts, hearing these chants. And there's, a you know, the camera's focused on him and he's clearly visibly uncomfortable. Let's not forget, like, this isn't just about this one man's humiliation or this one man's ego or this one man's narcissism or whatever. It's that he is a stand in, right, for this collective humiliation, right, of his base. So, to my co host's point, right, like him losing, and I put that in quotation marks, um, uh, vote count in a certain state is obviously a huge and maybe a critical swing state, especially a battleground state. is a major sign, a major humiliation for him and his people. A loss of an election is a major humiliation for his people, which he is a stand-in for this sort of loss, uh, this need for, for purity and a return to this like mythic past. So you better fucking believe, we're talking about Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham, you also better believe that all of these cronies, these are militias that have been popping up in Oregon and throughout the country, Michigan storming these state houses, you better believe that they're going to, come to their man's defense, so to speak, right? And stand up for this uh, potential humiliation, right? Of him losing. Because losing (laughs) is the worst possible thing you could do with this fascist rhetoric, right? Because winning is, well, winning trumps all.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's his slogan, right? It's all about like winning. Or wait, that was like Charlie Sheen. He always said like winning, God, flashback to back. I don't even know when that was, but yeah, no. Trump is all about winning too, um, and although we said like we're we believe things could slip into fascism, we don't we don't see it completely yet. I do really want to talk about the theory that it it might be closer than you think or has always been closer than you think, and I want to talk about Operation Paperclip. But before I jump mm-hmm. into that, something you said. Um, got me thinking about that piece you were talk, telling me about, which was like war games kind of predicting the outcomes of the election and that almost every way, like it would end in a civil war, right?
1: Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. So for folks who haven't seen this, uh, in the press recently, there is this, uh, there's this organization, uh, or really it's a, almost a thought experiment. Basically it's called the transition integrity project, um, it's a bipartisan, uh, essentially a, a council, if you will, with over a hundred current and former senior government and campaign leaders, academics, journalists, polling experts, and former federal and state government officials. So essentially, a you know a bunch of uh, different folks from both uh, the Republican and Democratic side of the aisle, representing a wide range of like uh, careers, right? and expertise. Essentially, this started in 2019, but this summer, as my co-host was saying, they met this summer uh, because, of course, Trump has been tweeting for a while this year that the uh, election will be rigged, the election should be per- postponed, the election is a sham, if I don't lose, then it's rigged, all this stuff, right? As this has been ramping up, this transition integrity project met this summer to conduct a series of war game exercises. And yes, every single scenario led to civil war outside of Trump having a decisive victory. So this this panel of experts mapped out, hypothetically mapped out what, what would happen, likely what could happen in all these different uh, potential outcomes, right? Potential strategies. And nearly every single one led to civil war. And as my co-host offered to me via text, well, you could even argue that Trump's decisive victory would also lead to civil war too, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like the Antifa, again, like I don't even want to call them a group because it's not, it's like scattered. It's so many things, but that whole sentiment, um, they would really boil over the people who've been angry in the streets, you know, BLM might also boil over, too, because all these people are at their breaking point. I mean, we are at our breaking points. So, and, and yeah, it seems so far that, once again, like, Trump is behind, and, of course, he's already calling fraud before it even happens, like we said. Um, and so, yeah, it's just very scary times, but it doesn't, even though it doesn't look like he might win you know like he said he teased everyone he's not going to give up power it doesn't matter who wins he's not leaving (laughs) because once again he does not want to be in jail and what's waiting for him Mm -hmm. jail (laughs) right he
1: doesn't want to be in jail and you know we we mentioned at the top of the episode this article the election that could break america to be clear there's a consensus now that and, and this is what Barton Gilman, the author of that article, said, that there is not a single scenario in which Trump will concede. So, the, like, so just, just step back a, a moment to, to recognize that regardless of what happens and how this plays out, because there are dozens and even hundreds of ways this could play out, the bottom line is Trump will not concede. He will not concede in any of those scenarios. So it's very easy to imagine him not conceding and rallying up his band of misfit militants to incite violence all over the country.
0: And if that's not the mark of authoritarianism, then I don't know it is.
1: Yes. Yes. And, you know, my co-host mentioned that, you know, that there's this murky, murkiness in the constitution because there's all these rituals, right? Well, one of the key rituals is the concession, and so Al Gore, although he did concede in December of 2000 for the sake of American democracy, he didn't have to. Uh, He could have challenged it and continued the process and the recount, but he conceded, and that ritual, uh, which is just an etiquette thing, basically, it's not written anywhere, Uh, that was um, what ended the dispute. So Knowing that Trump will not end the dispute via a concession means that this could go on for months.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we've talked about those scenarios, too, and how it could play out um, in the winter. But just again, like for people who don't think that this can happen here, I want to just point out... um, some cases around the world that are comparable to the events unfolding now and then like i said talk about operation paperclip because i think there's a lot of juicy tidbits that are not conspiracy and are very interesting um but yeah so like right now a lot of historians are saying the u.s is reminiscent of you know eastern europe And Latin America when they were going through similar problems or like Serbia in 2000 or there's like this still happens like in the modern age. It's as my co-host just said earlier in the episode, it's just a scenario that we would never think could happen in America. But, and you know, a really good example of something like this going down in a place that people didn't think it really could at the time is in Chile in South America. And they had been Latin America's stablest democracy throughout the 20th century. Um, But then in the 1960s, there was, like, polarization, um, and the uh, really leftist president, um, Salvador Gende got put in power, and then there was a very bloody military coup in 1973 that killed him and installed a right-wing general Augusto Pinochet, Pinochet, yeah, I studied this in college, but I can't fucking remember how to pronounce it, so sorry to all these dead men, um, but anyway, he had a brutal dictatorship, so I'm actually not sorry about butchering your name, um, and that brutal dictatorship with a lot of bloodshed and where a lot of, like, you know, people who descended, dissent, dissent, I can't even speak today, where dissidents, um, and like journalists and stuff like that these are people who were meant to disappear, as they said, which basically means you were killed off if you went against the dictatorship. and we've also talked about this um, on previous episodes, but yeah, so that's that's a bit scary. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about the operation paperclip and then I think we're gonna open it up a little bit more really quick about. Um, the oligarchy and the billionaires here, um, what they've been up to since the pandemic. But yeah, Operation Paperclip, for those who don't know, this happened after World War Two in 1945. And this is when the Pentagon transferred over a thousand German Nazi scientists to the United States and recruited them. Um, so that the Russians couldn't have them, basically. Uh, Because, no, instead of jailing all of these people, like, I always heard of the Nuremberg trials and things like that, but you aren't taught Operation Paperclip in school. And, again, this is not conspiracy. This is factual. Look it up. Um, So, yeah, they... We basically stole these Nazis and gave them jobs in our government, and gave them new identities, basically clean slates. Um, So in addition to Operation Paperclip, there was also Operation Sunrise, nice name, in 1947, and that's when the CIA was forming, and that's when they recruited Nazis for the CIA. So when people say there's been fascism in America for a while, I mean, partially that's true, and sometimes I really wonder, did... Did the Nazis really lose um, World War II or did the movement get subverted? Because you also have to remember, again, we talked about in a previous episode, um, a one about Rockefeller, you know, like there were many Nazi sympathizing American industrialists that helped the Nazis, like the Rockefellers, we talked about them giving them free oil, Um, The Fords also, like the car, and the Bushes also uh, were involved, helping out the fucking Nazis. So was Operation Paperclip really the creation of the Fourth Reich? That's what I want to know. And just to give you some examples, uh, Nazi... Again, I'm going to butcher all these names, but Werner von Braun, I think I said that okay... He was a Nazi engineer that helped take the U.S. to the moon, if you believe in that. Um, And he was an acclaimed NASA associate admin. And even though he should be as famous as, like, Neil Armstrong, he's not really talked about because he's a Nazi, -Nazi. ex-Nazi. Also, Arthur Rudolph, ex-Nazi, another huge NASA rocket scientist. Herman Oberth, same story. And, and they're not just in NASA. Like I said, they're in the CIA, they're in the Pentagon. Um, and then there was also, that's when people say in 1947, again, you have to remember, 1945 was Operation Paperclip, 1947 Operation Sunrise. So once these Nazis were recruited and integrated into the U.S. government, In 1947, you see this US power dichotomy where there's a difference between the formal government, who's elected like the Congress members and president, and then there's the secret government, or some refer to as deep state, which is the CIA and the US military industrial complex. So some say that because these Nazis were such ranking, like um, high level ranking, officials of our government has fascism ever really gone away um then there's this also this really weird theory where you know about Nixon and Trump because after World War II um well Nixon was a naval lieutenant uh commander in the war and then after the war he was transferred to New York Bureau of Aeronautics and then he was the head legal oversight of Operation Paperclip So he was involved in recruiting the Nazis over, the Nazi talent scout, if you will. Um, And he was also managing UFO files uh, when he was VP for Eisenhower, but that's another story uh, under Project Blue Book. But anyway, you have to remember uh, Drumpf, a.k.a. Trump, remember Trump's real name is Drumpf, and that's German. Keep that in your back pocket. But remember, his beloved uncle, his uh, professor John Trump, a.k.a. the nuclear uncle, because he was involved in atomic bomb stuff. Um, He was also, like, involved with Nixon because he was involved with the UFO crash cases as well. And the Tesla cover-up, you know, hiding Tesla's free energy technology. At least that part is a conspiracy Um, But after his presidency, somehow Nixon befriended Donald Trump because you might know there's this letter, framed letter from Nixon that Donald Trump has where he like says he knew he was going to be the president and it's really weird. So there's this whole theory about Nixon, um, you know, indoctrinating Trump into this fascist thing. So just throwing that all out there, I'm not really too sure about that one. But yeah, what do you think?
1: Wow, it's it's so it's so brutal and shocking on on one turn, right? But then you know, as you're speaking and and connecting all these dots, it re- it really makes you wonder, right? I feel like since the onset of of Black Lives Matter, and especially this summer when it hit critical mass, I think many people, myself included, have been you know, doing the work of, like, re-educating ourselves, uh, you know, on learning how we've been socialized, especially in U.S. history growing up, uh, to recognize the the clean, clear lines of white supremacy that have been, uh, that have wove themselves throughout the trajectory of this, co- this country, right? Um, you know, Jim Crow, Civil War, redlining, all this stuff, all these forces in play, and you, you know, you cut to, you flash forward to, like, 2017 Charlottesville, right, and all these white nationalists with their tiki torches, and and all these other people at all these Trump rallies to current date, it really makes you wonder, like, you know, with the KKK and, and all this stuff, like, perhaps, like, Nazism as you're saying, as you're positing all these connections, like it, it never ended, right? It wasn't like defeated. Clearly, it's really tapping into something that is very much like alive and well in the well, what what was the underbelly of the country for many years, but it has been there, dormant, if you will, somewhat dormant, and is now rearing its head in a big, huge way because they have a big old <laughs> cloud of a mouthpiece, a figurehead, a a leader. Uh, who's the Mm commander-in-chief.
0: It's really, really, really terrifying. So, yeah, um, there's just so many different theories of ways that fascism has either seeped its way in or is seeping its way in. But all I can say definitively is, one, that Nazi shit is fucked up and true. And two, um, you can't deny that, at the very least, Trump is is trying to be as my co-host said what is called like a strong man he's a weak strong man in some ways Mm -hmm. but he's trying to be that um but yeah it's really interesting also because like now just we're gonna briefly talk about like the oligarchs the technocrats who have uh, been ranking in the big bucks since the pandemic which we talked about in a while ago so we'll touch up on it now but yeah, I I wonder. Um, it's weird. We know that Bill Gates and Trump don't seem to be in cahoots, but I just wonder how these billionaires like view Trump. I mean, he obviously gives them good tax breaks and things like that, um, and he's in with like Zuckerberg and some people, but I just wonder how they play into the fascist piece, you know, if they're a puzzle piece in that.
1: You know, it's a really good question, and this is not really my area of expertise, but I I think, like, broadly speaking, just with regard to, like, tax rate and estate tax and all this stuff, uh, dividends, also um, with regard to kind of antitrust monopoly shit, I, I feel like a lot of these oligarchs do view trump as more favorable you know because the stock market is doing really well right uh right now regular people are suffering you know their unemployment's really high evictions are happening uh, people are struggling but the stock market the most elite and wealthy people in the country and of course the titans of industry who make all of that happen if you want to put it that way they're, they're kind of thriving in the current state, the current market. So, you know, with the Zucks connection to Trump, as we've outlined and other stuff, um, you know, I do think that, uh, as far as like these oligarchs are concerned, and I'm not suggesting it's as simple, as simplistic and black and white as this by any means, but I do think that they see him as this, um, (sighs) with regards to the economy, I mean, he's polling Trump actually pulls really well ahead of Biden with regard to the economy. So I think broadly speaking, they do see him as more favorable than perhaps Biden who might have more, you know, regulation and safeguards and, uh, and stuff like that.
0: Totally. And I mentioned earlier on, um, this YouTube account. I like really graceful and, when I saw her video in June, um, it's at that point she said she showed that billionaires had made over five hundred and eighty three billion since the pandemic, but at now, at well, as of September seventeenth, they have made um, eight hundred and forty five billion dollars. So yeah, maybe this is why they like Trump, Shock. like you were saying, right? And so you have to remind yourself, there's only 643 uh, billionaires in the United States um, with a collective net worth of $3.8 trillion. And if you do the math, their network net worth has gone up 29% since, since March 18th. And they have gained... 4.7 billion a day since the pandemic, okay? So I want to say that that as opposed to uh, the regular folks of America, you know, we've talked about the unemployment since March. There's been over 50 million Americans who have lost their jobs. Um, about 14 million are still unemployed. And even those who are have stayed employed have a lot have seen their hours be cut or their wages cut. And some percentage, Um, city and state budgets uh, face huge deficits right now. Uh, New York City predicts a loss of ninety six million in revenue. California fifty four million revenue loss since forced closure of businesses. Some permanently have shuttered their doors. Um, but like my co-host just said, the sun, the stock market is still doing well. Uh, it's really not an indicator of the economy. Um, but on some really, like, a little positive note, just the, last Thursday, the um, New Jersey actually passed a really good deal uh, for a millionaire's tax. So they're going to raise the rate from... 8.97 percent to a tax of 10.5 or 10.75 percent on earnings over a million dollars. So um, that's one way they're trying to address the fiscal crisis that's brought about by the pandemic. Um, and that tax is expected to generate as an estimated amount of 390 million dollars in this fiscal year. But that's still, you know, not enough. Um, it's short of the state's budget, which is estimated to be more than $10 billion, But it's still a step in the right direction, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Definitely a step in the right direction. But yeah, as you recapped, like, that is staggering. <laughs> like, absolutely staggering to think that it's nearly at, what, $1 trillion? $1 trillion earned for the, the most tippity-tippity-top of the 1% have earned since basically St. Patrick's Day mid-March of this year, while the vast majority of the country is is struggling. Uh, I mean, I, I saw another figure recently that was like, I think it was 79% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck.
0: Mm, not surprising.
1: Truly. Wow.
0: And yeah, that's why like, when you uh, lose your job or have a health crisis or something else, wonderfully American uh I'm only saying that because other people don't go into debt in other countries over medical expenses at least but (laughs) yeah when you're living paycheck to paycheck I mean you're just one step away from financial ruin and it just doesn't make sense for all these people to have more than they'll need in a million lifetimes or even that like five generations um of their family would even need they have even more than that and so it's just this point where it's like greed at all costs and it's and it's just um god what was the term it was something not capitalist warfare but i guess that's a good way to put it too and so yeah i mean they might be supporting the idea of fascism if they like the financial perks that they're getting from trump so that's on that.
1: Yikes. And yeah, one you know one other little rabbit hole I suggest folks go into. Uh, we've offered a lot of recommendations in this episode. but if you're curious to uh, Google some charts about the wealth gap, uh, the wealth inequality uh, gap, leading up to the French Revolution, the 10 years leading up to the French Revolution, it's it's staggering and almost exactly mirrors the relative gap that has changed in the United States. So as Mykos is saying, you know, we've seen, especially since the Great Recession, all these bailouts that were unchecked. Uh, they weren't tied to, you know, um, regular people. <laughs> they were tied to, uh, you know, companies and earning profits and all that shit that hollowed out a lot of a lot of wealth for regular folks flash forward 10 years and then 2020 as regular folks have been building some equity not everyone but folks have been doing better in the last 10 years then we're back to another like butchering hollowing out of the middle class of regular folks and working people struggling while the very top are Earning staggering amounts of money, almost one trillion cents March. I it, it's truly hard to hard to wrap my head around. But yeah, French Revolution. Google that wealth gap. That's interesting.
0: And that's interesting. Um, oh, sorry, I was just gonna say. No, go for it. Go for it. Interesting, you brought that up because um, astrologically, that what was going on in the French Revolution is what's going on now. So other people listen to our episode um, planetary pandemic. Because we talk about that as well, and yeah, it's just something else we're gonna talk about on another episode. It furthers the problem is like the autumn further automation of everything. Like since the industrial revolution, we've just been like on an exponential uh, growth of AI, AI and technology in general. So once technology, you know, there's computers that can like write books and write better than humans and things like that. And if they're obviously going to be cheaper labor. So once that happens, talk about beyond the obliteration of the middle class. It's like so many people will be without a job and it's just going to make the wealth gap so much worse. And it's already outrageous.
1: Absolutely. Hey, I wonder if we could ever get Andrew Yang on this podcast. I hear he does a lot of, a lot of podcast interviews with scrappy Scrappy little upstarts, but for those who don't know that name, uh, he ran for president and he is a leader of a growing movement in the United States uh, toward a universal basic income. He talks about the fourth industrial revolution that's underway with automation. Really fascinating guy. Uh, but yeah, to my co-host's point, um, you know this whole pandemic is just exacerbating uh, the bifurcation of the economy and uh, this march toward you know, a uh, huge hollowing out of a lot of jobs, especially in the middle of the country. Like trucking is a huge, huge employer. I think there's like five, six, seven million jobs in like trucking is going away. <laughs> there's going to be um, automated trucks very soon here in the United States. So much more to come on that on economic bullshit, class tensions, class warfare, and uh, just straight up <laughs> oligarchy basically. Um, one thing that I, one, two things that I want to offer folks, our listeners, we covered a lot of ground in this episode, but we do always, not all each episode, but we try to offer some grounding tactics, some transmutations, some, something you can tangibly do, right? Rather than just sticking, uh, staying in the muck and the mire and spiraling. (laughs) Um, so two things real quick, there's this author, uh, Timothy Snyder, Uh, who wrote this book called um, On Tyranny. And it came out actually in 2017. It's a very slim book. It's Tiny and small, and not that long. Um, And it essentially offers antidotes uh, to tyranny, basically, actions that you can take in your everyday life. Uh, One of them is like using your own words. We see like word salad and jargon thrown around all the time, but like to challenge and not normalize things by like using your own words to describe things. Um, also, he recommends like reading fucking books <laughs> um, and a number of other concrete things that you can do to like defend institutions like the press and um, other critical cornerstones of uh, democracy. And Timothy Snyder, this uh, this author of On Tyranny, um, you know, he one of his points in this book is that post-truth is pre-fascism. Uh, so a very timely book that he came out with one other thing I want to leave folks with, and I'm going to kick it over to my co-host to see if she has any closing thoughts. It actually is a, uh, a poem uh, that my co-host mentioned earlier in this episode, and I do want to read it because we're talking about noticing all these signs. We talked about the slow motion car car crash and almost like the image, too, I like to think of like the, the lobster in the boiling pot, right? It's like as the temperature of the water in the pot Increases the water's boiling, like the lobster doesn't really necessarily know because it is gradual, it is incremental. I think that lobster in the pot situation uh, is kind of mirrors what's been going on here in the United States, kind of creeping up on you. I do want to read this poem uh, that relates to that of what my co host mentioned um, earlier in this episode. So essentially, this is a, just a portion of this poem by this German uh, Lutheran pastor, Martin uh, Niemöller. Uh, It is famous. You may have heard of it before, but I just want to read a little piece of it as as we've unpacked a lot of signs of fascism. Uh, First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So I, I offer you that uh, just as a kind of reminder um, of what the, all the movements that we're seeing. Uh, play out, the rhetoric play out, speech, whether that's online, in person, microaggressions that you witness, just bear in mind that it is your responsibility uh, to do what you can uh, to name it and, and call it out when you, when you see it. Um, I'm not shaming you and suggesting you need to, uh, be on your high horse at every waking hour, but just to recognize that this, this phenomenon does happen in this like incremental way. And so, uh, be, be aware of that.
0: Yeah. I'm really glad you read that poem. Cause I think I was trying to like paraphrase that, I believe in the last episode, but it's really hard to keep track <laughs> these days. um, yeah and it's it's exactly what we're talking about um and bystander uh effect where it's just like also fatigue like you're saying like lobster in the boiling pot it's it also reminds me of um i think a little bit of alice in wonderland where there's oh gosh there's this like I think there's this um it's like a pearl I don't even know an oysters and like a a walrus who's like planning to eat them but they don't know it and they're like still they're in the situation and it's happening and it's like too late so yeah I mean people when I told someone I like was low key thinking of leaving the country this person literally laughed at me and I was like um if you were, say, in Poland, like, right before the start of World War II, uh, wouldn't you want to get out? (laughs) Like, what have we learned from history? So, it just sucks. I mean, it's hard to fathom. Part of me keeps thinking, you know, this can't happen, and I'm also, like, positive that a lot of this can be transmuted. Like we said at the top of the episode, um, people a lot more, like, white supremacists were supposed to show up in Portland and fuck shit up and they didn't so I hope there's more good people um, kind people out there than not and like Ellen always says be kind except that's not a good example because she's just gotten under a ton of scrutiny Um, and there's also conspiracies about her eating children but I'm not gonna go there Um, but I'll leave you guys with that be kind
1: (laughs) that's so funny and actually you know what i just i just had the realization that actually ellen is a perfect example right the the be kind uh rhetoric and actions and behaviors and like what's going on beneath the surface like that's like kind of the name of the game right now and i actually want to throw out one more thing because you just mentioned alice in wonderland this is such a nugget that I got overlooked in the bob woodward book rage kushner Uh, is quoted by the author Bob Woodward as uh, explaining Donald Trump's uh, management style and kind of way of seeing the world and operation strategy. Kushner paraphrased, uh, was paraphrasing the Cheshire Cat in Alice in Wonderland as a way of making sense of Trump's chaotic style of management, saying, quote, if you don't know where you're going... Any path will get you there.
0: Oh, hell no. Hell to the no. To the no no. So,
1: yikes. Wow, wow, wow. So thank you all for listening for those who've made it to the end of this uh 90-minute plus episode. We really appreciate your tuning in. This was a monster episode. Uh, and I guess we're now on a series of monster episodes. And that probably isn't going to stop anytime soon. We have the debates coming up. We have probably several October surprises uh, coming up before the election. So thank you again for tuning in. We really appreciate you. And we will catch you next time.
0: Yes, and as always, email us at shocktherapypodcast at yahoo.com, world's number one cutting-edge email provider. Uh, and be kind but for real be kind and be safe bye
1: be kind be best bye